Hello and welcome to STEM Radio Hour. Before we begin, the STEM Radio Hour show would like to acknowledge the financial support of the Taylor Institute of Teaching and Learning at the University of Calgary, the Imperial Oil Foundation, and the Workland School of Education at the University of Calgary, Canada. STEM Radio Hour is an invitation to explore our identities in the ever-changing space of computing and techno-science. In this series, we will share real stories about how people find themselves in the world of STEM, that is, science, technology, engineering, and mathematics. For our first episode, we will be talking to the principal investigators. We'll hear about their research and how it all comes together with this new podcast. The first team member that we will chat with today is Dr. Marie-Claire Shanahan. She describes herself as, quote, a science education and communication researcher interested in the social parts of science. The social parts she's referring to include gender, scientific discourse and communication, and science education. So I'm an associate professor of science education here at the Workland School of Education. I teach in our undergraduate teacher education program. She's a very passionate and engaging speaker. You really can't help but find yourself becoming intrigued by the topic she takes interest in. I also do research in student identity development, in scientific language and discourse, really with a particular interest kind of in public discourse about what it means to talk about science in public. In her research, she delves into identity in science, which, to oversimplify it, seeks to understand who considers themselves an insider or outsider in various contexts in science. And in the very broad sense means who we are, who we think we need to be in a particular situation. Marie-Claire is finding that someone's identity in science is actually very complex. It's an interaction of how someone sees themselves and what they think science is. There's the you know, what are the skills and qualities that support people in succeeding? Um, And then there's, what do people think they need to be like? Marie-Claire continues on to explain how parents and guardians have a very powerful influence over students' relationship with science. She mentions that it was her parents that first set her on a course to become a scientist. As long as I can remember, my parents told me, you know, oh, you're great at science. Oh, you would love that. It's about the stars. And and it just becomes kind of a self-fulfilling prophecy. My parents shaped my perceptions of science in very much the same way that Marie Claire's did. I remember a couple of birthdays where my parents got me digital encyclopedias of animals. But knowing that not every kid would have been happy if their parents got them an encyclopedia for their birthday, it made me wonder... Is it really important if everyone is interested in science or not? That's actually a really important question. Because sometimes I think the desire to widen who participates in science gets misunderstood and misinterpreted as 
we think everybody should be an engineer or a scientist. I don't think society functions that way. We, we really need all kinds of people. So what do scientists hope for when they talk about widening who participates in science? Engaging with scientific ideas gives people power in their everyday lives. And that is something that I want for all of my students. I don't want them to be excluded or even have the feeling of being excluded. Before she was a professor, Marie Claire was a junior high science teacher. During that time, she noticed a pattern in the students that were moving on to senior high. This pattern sparked the initial question that led her to her current research. I really did have a burning question about my students. She noticed how they spoke about their relationship with science, and she was curious about what it meant. She tells me about an important interaction with one of her students. And I remember one student in particular walking into my lab over lunchtime, and uh, it was near the end of grade 10, and I... I said, wow, you know, how are you doing? Um, you know, your last project was, was really great. Like, are you, you know, what are you thinking of taking next year? Are you going to take chemistry? Are you going to take biology? Are you taking physics? Are you going to take all of them? Yeah. And she just looked at me like I'd asked her if she was going to go to the moon. She just <laughs> was like, what? None of them. Like, why would I do that? I'm not a science person. Do I belong in science? The answer to this question can determine whether we take science classes as students or if we think it's something for other people to learn about. So, how do we find our identity in science classrooms? According to Dr. Bomi Kim, designing video games and valuing playfulness can be very helpful. I'm an associate professor at the Walkland School of Education and I'm currently chair of the Learning Sciences. Her research interests focus on taking the resources and tools of experts and using them to research and develop learning tools. So what we do is actually looking at uh, theoretical perspectives of how people learn to design learning experiences and learning environments so that we can help people learn better and also enjoy their learning experiences. I was fortunate to have her and Pratim guest lecture a couple of the classes that I was taking this last winter semester. In these classes, we got to see a couple of educational programs and hear about the focus of their research. The research she was observing the classes for is trying to understand the role of play and playfulness in student engagement. So when you're playful, your goal changes and you create your own goal. So there's no right answer. Bomi gives me an example of what playful learning can look like. So if you imagine, uh, if you're playing uh, in the playground, uh, you may create your own goal every time. For example, if you are sliding, you may have a goal of uh, standing up when you reach to the end. And you may fail every time you do it, but you will continue trying it because you can see that you're progressing every time you try. In our conversation, she shows me that playful learning is actually a creative process. She expresses that creative tasks provide students with opportunities for personal growth. Yeah, and we see learners' creation and learners' design as a very powerful thing. Because when we create something, we express a lot more about ourselves than we imagine you get to understand more about yourself. And it's not about what other people think about you or what other people try to understand about you. 
As I continue to speak with Bomi, it's evident that she is very passionate about her work. She describes the focus of her research as developing student understanding of natural and social phenomena through the use of games. I asked her to share with me the question that started her work in this interesting field. So the question is about how we can better empower learners so that learners own the process and learners own the knowledge they are creating. Bomi has been involved in several projects that include video games. One of these projects had students create their own game. So one of my projects in a school here in Canada is in a technology classroom and the teacher had a students come up with game ideas and when she gave them an option to create any kind of game that they were interested in, one group of girls who were all religious, they had a very casual, they came up with a very casual game that had no violence and it was more of, uh, it mimicked more like an Angry Bird kind of game. So it, they were much more comfortable with that idea and experimenting with game design. Whereas there's a group of boys which the teacher told me that they find no meaning in school and she was particularly talked a lot about this group because she see different light in their eyes when they come to school. They're interested in coming to school and they are interested in engaging in the project. They're even interested in exploring careers in relation to game design. And it helped when she allowed them to uh, create a violent game. Walking Dead was really popular, so I think a lot of students wanted to actually create a game that's related to zombies. So that helped them to be more interested in this project. And I, I think it's power of letting learners create a project driven by their own interest. Bomi's work has shown that designing games and playfully engaging with complex scientific ideas can open up new worlds for learners. And according to Dr. Pratim Sengupta, this playful but serious engagement doesn't just happen in the classroom. It can also happen in public spaces and with code created by professional scientists. Pratim is a research chair of STEM education and associate professor of learning sciences in the Workland School of Education. He's principal investigator of VMAP, which is a programming language for science, math, and engineering classrooms, and is recipient of the NSF Career Award in 2012. His work can be summarized as taking complex scientific computational models and just putting them in public and trying to engage the public with that work. To achieve this, he uses a special kind of coding called agent-based modeling. It's named for its use of agents. An agent is an individual or group that uses commands the coder gives it to act on its own. It allows anybody to model how birds flock, or how traffic jams form, or how electrons move through a field. Pratim's work aims to make interaction with complex modeling as intuitive as possible. In addition to making the programming intuitive, Pratim also uses familiar hardware. For one of his projects, he used touchscreens and a steering wheel. We thought, you know, people drive with steering wheels and they control their cars directly, right? What if you just 
have them, you know, drive a bird in the flock. The project he was telling me about is called Boyd's. Boyd's is a flocking simulation, and every individual boy looks like an arrowhead. The program is run through three massive touchscreens, and all of the programming for the model is quote-unquote glass-boxed. Being glass-boxed means anyone can go in and change different aspects of the program. Pratim spent months and months perfecting the code before he released it to the public. He shares a significant story. Now, it's a very funny anecdote. And I spent two months, three months optimizing the values and playing with a combination of three numbers. And it turns out that the first night that we installed it, a dad happens to walk by with a toddler in his arms. And one of the first things they do, they changed my carefully curated set of three numbers from 1.5 to 5 million. (laughs) Uh, Well, I, I will never forget how I felt at that moment. They created a flocking pattern that I had never seen before. Here I am, you know, believing what I was doing, the act of optimizing mathematically a set of three parameters was science. And here someone comes in with no background, plays around with the code, and within a second produces this phenomenon that I have never experienced before. You know, in in maybe a hundred lifetimes, it would have never occurred to me to choose five million as the value of that parameter. That first moment of making that scientific code public, luckily, I think, showed me almost all the possibilities. After speaking with Dr. Shanahan about identity in STEM, Dr. Kim about play and playfulness, and Dr. Sengupta about coding and open science, I was thinking about how radio must fit in with all of these. So I asked Pratim, what do all of these have to do with each other? So what does it all mean? So I think the so what question is really important because identity, playfulness, and technology, and coding, and science, and engineering, and mathematics, these are not independent of each other. So much of STEM is, John Dewey said, it's, you know, the quest for certainty. That's what modernity is all about. And, and STEM, I think, epitomizes that. It's humanity's search for certainty in a very uncertain world. Pratim mentions that radio is an excellent way to share and tell stories, and that in creating and sharing stories, we put parts of our identities out into the world. Both STEM and storytelling are very human activities and endeavors, but I'm getting the sense that there's an even more explicit connection between science and storytelling. So in science, what we do is we essentially build models. It's not reality itself. It's a powerful representation of reality where the power comes from the fact that the model explains something that you cannot see. Uh, So the model tells the story that your senses directly cannot. I think it's hard to escape storytelling even as the most sophisticated technologist. Pratim's work involves putting complex scientific models into public spaces. 
This practice of open science is shedding new light on what the public can offer STEM. STEM is a march towards certainty, but the journey itself is uncertain. This podcast is about sharing stories of STEM journeys. We hope you've enjoyed listening to our first episode. We uncover facets of our identities through the stories that we make and share. As we share more stories like these with you, we hope that we can open the world of science together. Thank you for listening. This is Alicia signing off. In the next episode, we will be speaking with the Calgary Poet Laureate, Derek Folia, as he creates a piece of visual poetry.